Everybody be cool. This is the Mac and Cheese Podcast. Any of you fucking pigs move and I'll execute you every motherfucking last one of you. Pulp Fiction Mac and Cheese, next. When your weekends all spin up and Monday's coming down the pike, sometimes all you need is a little comfort to get you through to Monday. Mac and Cheese Movies, where we believe in comfort food and comfort movies. Welcome to Mac and Cheese Movies. I'm Scotty Coppage. And she wins dance contests and overdoses. It's Shannon Coppage. Hey, everyone. And he loves Sprite after a big kahuna burger. Chad Newman. I'm Brett? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be Brett. (laughs) Hello, Shannon and Scotty. (laughs) Brett, if you're listening, I'm sure he's very sorry. (laughs) This is the first show with Chad and Shannon together. Out of two years. It's an exciting moment, for sure. Moment, momentous. Momentous, This, this is like say. the super team up um, episode of the podcast. With our powers Special. combined, we will have an Four incredible hour. podcast. Four hour episode. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're doing a movie that we held off on. We didn't want to just do it just to do it or have someone on that just... Maybe it was their first time seeing it or whatever. Or they it was weren't, mediocre. Or they weren't around for the for the big explosion this movie was. Was um, I around for the big explosion this movie was? I think the explosion you, came later for me. <laughs> did you see it when you were eight? No, I did not see it when I was yeah. eight. Okay. But you're married to me, so you get you get like you get some passes on some stuff. You get some passes. All right. All right. So I'm t- I'm turning forty this year. I want to have a Pulp Fiction birthday party. And we were going to go all out for it. Um, then COVID hit. Now we're having a Zoom Pulp Fiction birthday party. We're going for it. And Shannon said, who do you want to do the podcast with? I said, Chad, there's no number two. There was no one else I want to do this podcast with. So we made big kahuna burgers with Hawaiian bread, pineapple slices, cheese, ketchup, and teriyaki sauce. Got the recipe from Benjamin with Babish. Shannon also made a $5 shake out of homemade ice cream and whole milk. How'd the burgers turn out, Shannon? The burgers were very tasty. Um, I really liked the, what was it, with the onions? Oh, caramelized onions. Caramelized onions were delicious, and you kind of like smushed those down in there. That was really tasty. I really liked the pineapple. It added a little, just a bite of sweetness. It wasn't overwhelming, but very complimentary. Very much enjoyed it. It's It's a good recipe, Chad. You should make these at home. 
I will. I just had a red apple in commemoration of red apple cigarettes. <laughs> this is our. This is the earliest podcast we've done during the day, so I wasn't ready for a Royale cheese or anything. Oh, they're gonna say for a red apple cigarette. <laughs> no, there's always time for red yeah. apple cigarettes. Always time. Yeah. Well, we had the five dollar milkshake this morning, and at first I was like, let's just hold off until your birthday Zoom tomorrow, and. Nope, 30 minutes before. I've got time. Let's do it. I did not realize, I looked at some recipes last minute for a $5 milkshake, did not realize how involved they are. I was just like, uh, gosh, 30 minutes is not going to be long enough for this, so I'm just going to wing it. Um, But I made some ice cream yesterday, Uh, not as impressive because, you know, KitchenAid mixer and all, but uh, very tasty. And Scotty asked if I, like, put a peach in it or something because it did taste different because um, all of these $5 milkshake recipes I saw, they all had yogurt in them. They oh. were... Oh. I thought you just gave the dog my yogurt. I thought that's what happened when the yogurt was on the floor. Well, it has been in the fridge a very long time, but no. <laughs> but no, so I did that, used some uh, whipping cream and stuff, chocolate, a little bit more vanilla, I thought it was really pretty good. All of these recipes, by the way, we're not using the like cheap vanilla yogurt that we get from the grocery store. They're like all natural, whatever. Screw it. This is what I've got. <laughs> but I do think it added something to the texture. I think it added something to the texture. I liked it. I'm going to do it again. I think that's one thing that maybe one of the only things that shows kind of the age of the movie is that uh, Vincent is so uh, taken aback by a $5 milkshake. I bet if you went to like BJ's or any restaurant now, I bet the milkshakes are probably around five bucks. Yeah. Well, right. Chick-fil-A play- milkshake. How much is a Chick-fil-A milkshake? It's not Four, cheap. $5? Yeah, it's not. I think maybe this was the smells like teen spirit of milkshakes, this movie. <laughs> so that's funny that you say that. I was going to make that comparison, not for the milkshake aspect, <laughs> but maybe for something else. But yeah, that's point well taken. Milkshakes were revolutionized by a Jackrabbit Slims. I'm wearing a Jackrabbit Slim shirt right now. I'm wearing a Beto shirt, so <laughs> I'm not in character at all. Chad, what shirt are you wearing? I'm not wearing a shirt. <laughs> Um, actually, the shirt's not that impressive, but I have a wooden uh, – I'll try to show this to you on my camera. It's Bill Murray pointing, saying, you're awesome. Ah, that's A great. carved Bill Murray pin. Wow. <laughs> I want one. Is it too late to ask for that for Christmas, Scotty? <laughs> <laughs> I want a lawyer with that. I guess I do have a lawyer with that. Um, yeah. 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 Look at Longview, Texas. Um, let's start out with first taste. First time you saw the movie, what's your relationship to it? Why is it a mac and cheese movie? I'm going to go first because mine's a little bit longer. So here we go. So I was 14 and didn't know much about it. I knew it was getting like all this awards coverage and stuff. I didn't really know what this movie w- was. I mean, how, how could you even know? Um, the trailer was at the be- beginning of the Crow VHS I had, um, it looked like a comedy. Pulp Fiction looks like a comedy from this trailer. Um, and you knew it was a big deal, but like all, back then it was just like Premier Magazine and Entertainment Weekly, Entertainment Tonight. So, I mean, there wasn't this 24-7 coverage 
of like think pieces and spoilers and memes and everything. I mean, you really didn't know what you were getting into. There's this, this six month kind of thing. Cause like the movie came out, I guess here and then was gone before it got really big. And so it didn't come here until I think like June back at the dollar movie. Um, but I'd had the soundtrack. I'd had the soundtrack and it had the dialogue in it. And it just, it seems like, it's like, what's this movie going to be like? And then when you go to the movie, it's so out of control. And it's so like, unlike anything I could even have thought it was going to be. And, um, you know, John Travolta's dead. There are parts from the soundtrack he hasn't said yet. Um, like, what's what's happening here? Um, and... You know, when you're watching it for the first time, when Butch is on his way out of the pawn shop and he goes back, you're like, what are you doing? You know, I thought, you know, the chainsaw, I thought the chainsaw was a good choice when I was 14, but I mean, that would probably, the chain would come off. You probably had to put gas in it or oil. I mean, the chainsaw is really like risky. I mean, it looks good, but no, the samurai is like way better. Right. Um, a pawn shop, does a pawn shop chainsaw even work? I don't even know if it works. I can speak from experience. Yes, they do. <laughs> so... My mom from did that time. From that time, you saved someone's life in the basement. Yes, I did. It works. Yes, it, that's for another day, though. That's a story for another day. My mom didn't didn't like the movie, and it wasn't because of the drugs or the violence or anything. It was because there was no decorating, and everyone was wearing their bathrobe. <laughs> this is one of the first stories I heard about Mary Helen, and I just died laughing because this is pretty early on. That's that's something that Scotty throws out pretty early on in a relationship. <laughs> Listen, I really like you, but you need to know my <laughs> mother know. did not like Pulp Fiction because of the set design. <laughs> also, never wear a bathrobe around her; she hates it. <laughs> the and, Big Lebowski is not a favorite in her house either. Nope. In in '97, Chad, you and me went to see. Star Wars: A New Hope on the seventy on the ninety seven re release, and you said to me, "I had like a drink," and you were like, "Can I have a taste of your beverage to wash this down?" And just kind of everything. There was like a New Year's Eve, I think, like that, like that year, and you're like, "I drive real fast, so keep up." And just everything was like kind of like secondhand for us with this movie, which I thought that everyone else was going to have that kind of language with stuff and they didn't it was only like a handful of people like your brother brett's one of them i was um you know bro- broke up with a girl you know on thursday I went to our friend courtney's house you know courtney called brett and brett was like it's 30 minutes away i'll be there in 10 um <laughs> so and this is really just one of the very <clears throat> first of your continuous uh disappointments in the world in general Yes, yes, like because <laughs> because by like 2003, I thought that like everyone should be should have seen Pulp Fiction by now. And then like I quit asking people because so many people were just saying no for the last five years, and then it just kind of now it's just kind of like okay, all right, well now such I'm, disappointment, yeah. <laughs> but they saw Can't Hardly Wait. They, they <laughs> and that's what's important. <laughs> <clears throat> what about you, Chad? What was your first so- experience? So, um, this would have been my sophomore year, the, that fall, um, our friend Michael Stevens and I, it was kind of like we were first becoming friends and we were in a high school theater class and we were doing face painting, like learning how to do face makeup. And so Michael and I had partnered up and, and maybe it was on a Monday and he's 
painting my face. And as he's painting, he says, oh, my gosh, I saw the most insane movie over the weekend. It's called Pulp Fiction. And he then – what I probably thought he was lying because the stuff he was describing, I was like, no, that's not in movies. No, a gimp, what is a gimp? No, there's no gimps in movies, not at movie theaters. And But anyway, he was really excited about it said, you need to go see it. And then by that next weekend, it was gone. So I think it only stayed for maybe a week at uh, in its initial run to Wichita Falls. Like you got the soundtrack, and uh, then when it hit the dollar theater, I think this is the movie that I saw the most times at the theater. I'm pretty sure I saw it six or seven times at the dollar theater. Uh, in fact, there was this girl who she heard our group of friends quoting Pulp Fiction and talking about Pulp Fiction so much, she she asked me, will you please take me to see this movie? And I had like $3 to my name. And I was like, we can go see Pulp Fiction, but you have to buy the drink and the Cokes because I don't have enough money. So we went and saw Pulp Fiction for $1.25 each or something. Um, so having heard a little bit about it, I think there were parts that – I think I had some – like I was feeling anxious about – like, am I going to be able to handle this gimp? The gimp scene was really was really concerning to me. I was like, am I going to be able to handle this? Everything else seemed like, um, yeah, it's violent, but the dialogue was so great, and it did. To your mother's point, everything seems so like um, not glamorous at all. Uh, even even like Mia Wallace's house, which is by far the nicest place in the movie isn't they don't show enough of them uh, they don't film it in such a way to make the house look awesome it's just so everything's like really kind of grungy and uh i think it was probably an instant for me i know it was an instant hit i thought this is this is amazing and only later maybe like on the 10th or so viewing that i'll that I, it first occurred to me, this movie's kind of long. <laughs> this is not like an hour and a half movie. This is like two and a half hours of solid go time. Uh, but for those first, you know, 10 or so viewings, it didn't feel long. Actually, the time it felt long, I was in the, this with this guy and he lived in a trailer house and me and George were like trying to leave this trailer house. But he was like, no, 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 let's finish Pulp Fiction. And at that point it was like, when did Pulp Fiction become the longest movie in the history of the world? We're not even to the Bonnie situation yet. We have got to get out of here. So anyway, yeah, there's a little brief history of me and Pulp Fiction. I dated a girl. The girl who was, ended up being my girlfriend through most of high school hated the movie. Like hated that I loved it. Hated that I wanted to see it and that we had the script and that we're, my friends and I were, like, were all talking about it and quoting it. Hated all of that. Love the soundtrack. Hated everything else having to do with it. <laughs> How does Lazy feel about it? She pro pro Pulp Fiction. She she is. It's. I don't think it's something at this point. Being a mother of five, she <laughs> is like you know what for family night. Let's watch Pulp Fiction. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Has Maybe it when they're yet. older. <laughs> when Peter's a little older, we'll watch Pulp Fiction <laughs> as a family. <laughs> Oh, what about man. you, Shannon? Your first taste? Oh, man. I can't wait to close this out with this scintillating. 
conversation. <laughs> no, uh, I love y'all's, uh, you, you've got very specific memories. You know, you were getting your face painted, which sounds like you're at a carnival <laughs> upon retelling. Um, Scotty's watching, like, The Crow. He remembers the exact movie that the face preview paint. was in. Face paint is with The Crow. <laughs> Face with is with the crow. It's a it's a continuous theme, not in the movie, but you know, in your lives. Uh, I shockingly do not remember when I first saw this movie, nor any details about it. However, I can guarantee it was not when that movie came out. It was not in the theater um, because I was small, and uh, my mom didn't let me watch PG thirteen movies when I was like until I was like fifteen. So. Um, or have yes. sugar. Tarantino or, R movies. Or have sugar, you know. You can watch The Simpsons. I couldn't watch The Simpsons or have ice cream. It was a very sad existence. Um, <laughs> however, I will say, uh, I mean, it was probably around 15, 16. And my mom loves that movie. I mean, she went and saw it, I think, with my sister in the theater. Um, and they loved it. And she still to this day loves it. Um, Scotty and I saw it in the classic film series. It was Fairly in, in, early on. In 2012. Yeah, 2012. When a, few, a few months. A few months. She didn't go to this party to go to this because it was one night only. It was amazing. And then we went and did like for the twist contest, we went to like the side, you know, where you walk in and we did like the twist. Like, it was and fun. It was fun. And we also kind of thought that maybe people were going to be peeking over and people would start clapping and that didn't happen. I'm like, just going to say, uh, I did not think that was going to happen. However, Scotty definitely <laughs> thought it was going to happen. But Scotty generally has the highest expectations for every social interaction ever. Um, I agree. And Chad, you gave me a Blu-ray of Pulp Fiction, I think, in 2012, <laughs> which um, led to... It's all, I ruined. It's dead it's now. It's ultimate demise yesterday. The, oh. it, it started... It started kind of skipping a little, and Shannon was like, I can fix that. And <laughs> what did you do, Shannon? Um, so I had this little machine uh, that, you know, like you put it in, you pop it in, and it, like, you press a button, and it does stuff. But I was like, ah, I don't, I don't know where the, the spray is. And Scotty was like, is it handy? Is it quick? We need to get back to the movie. So I was like, oh, I'm going to do this so fast. So I look up some videos on YouTube, and they're like, you know what you should use? Uh, rubbing alcohol and toothpaste. And I was like, cool. <laughs> so I was like doing that. Then I popped it in. Then I found the spray. It's completely blank. The PS3 did not even register that it was there. It was like a ghost wow. DVD. Um, so if you ever you want to... You erased a Blu-ray. I didn't know you could, know you could do that. I did not either. Um, <laughs> she dumped it in the thing that the Joker got dropped in in the first Batman movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It'd be funny, like a funny ju- uh, punchline to this. If this, if this were, were a bit, was we popped it in, and all of a sudden it was playing Boondock Saints, or some <laughs> oh. crappy version. Oh yeah, of that would fiction. be that would be incredible. However, it did get a superpower because now it's invisible. <laughs> um, I will say also in that classic film series viewing. Uh, we did a photo after the fact. That was one of our first uh, movie theater photos. Of course, they don't have a poster, but we're outside the theater, and uh, I laid down on the ground, you know, because what's more sanitary than movie theater carpet? Um, right. And uh, we reenacted the scene where John Travolta is, like, shooting some adrenaline into her heart, <laughs> which everyone walking by thought was great and not confusing at all. <laughs> 
You got to stab her three times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, nope, just the once, just to get through the breastplate right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the ingredients. John Travolta. You love him in this movie. He's so cool. He, I love what I love about him is like he isn't like a star that needs to be the center of attention in every shot. Like I've thought, thought about other actors in this role, and you have to be able to be just in the background while Samuel L. Jackson is doing a lot of stuff. And yeah, I will say that his character wants to be the center of attention at every given moment. Oh. Um, I mean, there's a point when the wolf is like looking over their work on the car and he's in the background and he looks like a little boy, like anxious for his teacher's approval. He's so excited. He's like, look, he's going to see it. And look, the blood's gone. Because like, like, like Jimmy's like, this doesn't even look like the same car. And, and he's, like, like, he's like, yeah. Yeah, he's got so much pride in that. Um, he, like, reminds me of, like, a, a yuppie, like, kind of traveling college student or something. Or, or, like, yes, I'm going to take a year really? off. He's like, you know, I don't watch TV shows. Um, he wants to have the last word on everything. He wants to be the smartest person in the room. He's pretty defensive in situations where he doesn't need to be defensive. So on the on the note of Travolta... I think Travolta's star was kind of waning by this point. Yeah. Like he was, he probably was a has been. And, um, I loved a movie he did in maybe like 1988 or something called the experts. Is maybe Kelly Preston in that too? On that someday. We can, uh, you'll probably have to watch it first because I don't know <laughs> that anybody watched it, but me and my brothers, I did not watch it. I, 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 I just wrote it down. I remember it being on HBO. Um, Do you remember watching it on HBO? Do you remember what the preview was? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think Travolta brought, in some regards, I kind of see there's some humility in his performance because it's kind of like I get to be a lead in a movie that is from uh, a director with some buzz. So Tarantino had done Reservoir Dogs and that was was, uh, an indie hit. Uh, And here he wanted Travolta. So, I don't know. I, Travolta's not showboaty like like he was before, and like he became afterwards. Uh, so this this is in my mind this is a really unique performance from John Travolta. Do we all agree that Samuel Jackson is this is peak? Like this is he never has been better than this. Never, and he is probably the best thing in this movie. Absolutely, absolutely. His character, and not not just. Him playing his character, but his character arc, everything, you know, he's just got the best. He's just got the best. There's there's a while where he's not in the movie. There's a, probably about an hour where he's not in the movie, it feels like. And, and even that's why when it, when it came to like award season, why he was relegated to the supporting actor role, because really his arc is the he's the only principal character who does grow and change. Everybody else kind of stays the same. Butch. And Vincent, but he he changes. So, uh, but yeah, he's not. You know, he's he's really just in the Bonnie situation stuff. Yeah, and I mean, even even when his voice is not risen, you're riveted. You know, even when he's oh, not yeah. like shouting the Bible, you know, in a very dramatic display, um, you are riveted, and uh, that's just. That's that's what Vince Vincent wants, I think, in in this movie is he wants to be like Jules. 
Um, he's like competing with him, sort of. But uh, nobody, nobody can overshadow him. I think what works with the cast in this movie is, I mean, John Travolta, we hadn't seen him in this kind of, at this level, at this point in time. Samuel L. Jackson hadn't really, he had been in, he had been in some movies, but he wasn't like a, in a star kind of making th- performance. Uma Thurman was still really young. We get Bruce Willis in this kind of supporting actor role, which is, um, it's not showboaty. It's not an action movie. And it's just everybody in there. It just works where I think if you have like, if you fill this film up with the top actors of the day at that time, I don't know if it comes off as well as like kind of grungy as like the houses are, you know, and kind of, I guess authentic. It comes more polished maybe. And let's right. talk about let's talk about it not being an action movie, but having all uh, pretty much all of the action movie tropes. There's speeding in cars, there's car wrecks. Um there's not any there's not any like explosions or anything unless you, you know, count Marvin's skull in the back of a car. However, oh, we don't even see it. We, we don't, don't even, even see, see it. it. No, we see the aftermath. Yeah. That's that's one thing that I noticed is that uh in this this more this viewing for this was there's there's very little gore. There's you know when when they're in the apartment at the beginning and they're shooting these guys, we don't see explosions of blood. We don't see the wall splattered or anything. Even with Marvin, um, we we see John Travolta's gun, and then we see stuff on the windows, but we don't see really the gore of it. Um, but yeah, I Shannon on that point, I was actually thinking when there's a lot of dancing in the movie and he shoots uh tarantino shoots the dancing like an action movie it seems you know when they first start like with the dance the twists contest um it's kind of a pretty standard shot they're and they're doing their moves and i know for everybody who is probably older than us who grew up on john travolta was like oh john travolta's dancing again this is awesome but then the camera start angles start changing, circling around them and doing these kind of close-ups of Uma Thurman dancing. And uh, even when they go back to her house and she's dancing to a girl, you'll be a woman soon. The camera's always moving around them. And so it kind of feels action-y, mm-hmm. even though, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It has a lot of these action checklist stuff, mm-hmm. but it's not an action movie. It, it, it lends a lot of movement to a movie that's mostly centered on conversation. You know, right. Um, and, and, and I really like how they did that because I mean, that can feel no matter how witty the banter, um, you, it can feel long. And like right. you, you stated earlier, this movie does not feel long. Um, unless you're trying to get out of, get out of somewhere, get out of like a finish it. trailer or whatever <laughs> yeah. that was. Yeah, when you're in a trailer in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> it does feel long, but, um, an episode of the Mandalorian would feel like it was really long in that scenario too. <laughs> So another thing, I I never thought of this until watching it this time. It's hard to get a feel for the space in the movie. So like um, when when they're in the apartment at the beginning, when Butch goes home, when uh, when they're even when they're walking through Jackrabbit Slims, the camera's always moving. It's always following them, but Tarantino doesn't really pull back and show us where we are. And so I just noticed that the like, I don't know if that's an editing thing to try to keep the pace of the movie going because 
like you said, we do need to keep the camera moving. Otherwise, this is going to feel just like a talking movie the whole time. But uh, if you were asked to draw out, for example, what uh, Jimmy's house, the floor plan was, you couldn't do it. You couldn't draw out the floor plan for Butch's apartment. And it looks like a pretty small, low-income apartment. Uh, that, I don't know why. That's just something that's, that stuck out to me this time was that – he kind of disregards the spatial awareness that a lot of movies. Well, and then to also, have. it doesn't have to be as expensive if you don't have those wider shots of all that. It's true. That's How, a good point. However, I think I mean, I, like one of the things that really stands out to me about this movie is you've got these really kind of big, you know, sexy kind of themes. I mean, you know, drugs aren't sexy, but you know, like action films or something. You've got drug dealers. You've got boxers you've got these really kind of sexy personas and um what in this movie but they're not focusing on that they're focusing on the minutiae they're focusing on hey remember when you went to amsterdam and what did they call a a cheeseburger over there oh royale with cheese what did they it's the minutiae and the small things and the humanizing aspects of these characters um and Instead of the big overall picture, like, oh, well, he's a drug dealer. Oh, they're a, they're an enforcer or whatever. Um, you're, you're getting the small things from it. And so you really connect right. to them more. And I think that maybe that's some something of what he's trying to accomplish with the filming as well. Because you're not going, oh, this is L.A. every second of that movie. Um, right. you're, you're going, Oh, well, that's a diner. I've been in a diner. Oh, that's a crappy apartment. I've been in a crappy apartment, <laughs> you know, like, um, all of the small things are really what make us connect to it. I think more and maybe make us connect to a lot of Quentin Tarantino's films, because even though they are just outrageous, they don't feel as outrageous every second of the movie. Right. To, to that point, we never see Butch beat the guy to death in the boxing ring. We don't see that. I didn't even know it happened, really, until these viewings for this podcast and the party and having it on closed caption. I thought maybe he got killed by some other re- some other ha- something else happened or they were reporting it wrong. Because you just see him jumping out of the window. And right. he doesn't know. Like, he's dead. And, like, that, he, that Butch beat the hell out of this guy. And this guy just, like was probably just like a poor boxer who just got in one last time that didn't, he didn't need to be in, in it. Well, and he didn't need to go up against Bruce Willis's desperation and pride, you know, like he's supposed right, to drop right. out. He's supposed to be a has been. And he's like, screw it. I'm not a has been. I'm just as strong as I ever was. <laughs> so that the fact that the emphasis is put not, if this was a movie made by like a major studio, in the early 90s, maybe even today, the emphasis would be very different. It, the emphasis would be on um, the the hits that the hitmen do. It would be on him beating someone to death in the boxing ring. Um, it would be on shooting Marvin, like what that was like. I mean, it, it'd be these huge – the beats would be very different in the movie. And it, at the beginning of the movie, when Jules and Vincent are walking into the apartment, um, they get to the door and Jules says, what time is it? And he tells him, he goes, oh, it's not quite time yet. Let's hang back. Let's go and let – there is – let me ask – see how I'd ask this. 
do you think Tarantino is showing off a little bit with the dialogue? Well, like, of course. Look at the look at the stuff I can do. Let's hold on. No, we don't need to get to the action just yet. Let's have him hang out in the hallway and talk more about these feet massages. Well, I, I don't know if it's uh, so much showing off, so much as just this is just like a this is their water cooler conversation. You know, they're yeah. going to get a get a drink before they get back to work. You know, like uh, they've got a break and they're taking it. Um, what does a hitman's breaks look like? Oh, it's just that that beat right before they go murder a bunch of people. You it, know, it breaks the mold of this kind of film, but also it really leads up to: Do you think that Vince is going to cheat with Mia Wallace and screw up stuff with Marcellus? That's how, where ninety nine percent of these movies go. And then the fact that it goes into a drug overdose and him trying to like drive her across town to Lance's is just something like you wouldn't you wouldn't see coming. Well, and, and I think I think what we were talking about um, with focusing on the small things, Quentin Tarantino doesn't go for the obvious, you know, like you're like you were saying, Chad, the major studio film wouldn't wouldn't be doing that. They'd be focusing on the boxer death or they'd be focusing on, you know, the hitmen murdering people and all of that instead of the in-between beats. That point of does does the hitman fall in love with the boss's wife? That would have been. Yeah, I think that's that would have been another highly emphasized thing uh, if this were a studio, if it was not – if Tarantino just sold the script and then some big action director got it, uh, that's how they would change it. They would turn it into those kind of predictable beats. Uh, I love that what you pointed out, Shannon, that um, that he takes us in directions that we did not anticipate. So – and the script is so smart – and when I say show off, I don't mean it in a bad way. I think Tarantino was very confident. I think he was like, I, I know how to write dialogue, and I've got the right people to say it. Um, when Vincent is in the bathroom at the Wallace mini mansion or whatever it is, um, he's talking us through like what the audience is expecting. He's saying, you know, okay, you're not going to do anything. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna be polite. You're gonna go home, <laughs> and that's all you're gonna do. Yeah. That's it. Don't. He's acknowledging what we're all thinking. Don't don't go do what we think you're going to do. He's even doubting his ability to, to overcome. In a way, thank goodness she overdosed on his heroin because he might have slept with her and or made a move that was unwelcome, and then things would have been very different for him. And isn't that hilarious that the worst option would be like she didn't overdose on heroin? <laughs> that would have been you know, so much worse. <laughs> but Shannon, I think you're hitting on something. I didn't – obviously I didn't view it this way with that in mind. But it would be fun to watch this movie looking for that. OK, pause the movie before something critical happens. What is the most uh, – what is the least risky thing that could happen? And how – and I think – Thinking about it, I think Tarantino shows us that actually the most conventional thing is the worst thing that can happen in this movie. If him sleeping with her, oh, that would be awful because Marcellus will go medieval on people. He'll torture him to death if he were to do something like that. Um, if what might what might be some other moments in the movie? Um, the pawn shop like scene where he <clears throat> they pass out, he gets busted. If the police came in and took him away or something, Marcellus probably has some connections in there. He would have died. You know, for so for Butch, that was actually a better outcome. Um, yeah, the 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 
the gimp and the raping was a better right. Outcome that was lunch. a better outcome. Just like the heroin overdose was a better outcome. Um, it's that's that's interesting. So they're both exonerated. Mm-hmm. Butch is exonerated from his wrongs by saving Marcel's from getting raped, and Vincent is exonerated from his adulterous thoughts by her overdosing on heroin. Um, does it apply to Jules in the third act? I don't know. I mean, Jules is exonerated from his lifetime of as a murderer. As a murderer, and he doesn't get killed. Vince gets cu- gets killed. Well, he gets out at the right time. He says this is a sign, you know. And as he's talking to Vincent about how this is a sign for him to get out, Vincent like is vehemently opposed to this argument and murders Marvin accidentally. If that's not a sign, right. you know, then what is here? And of course, you know, Vincent gets murdered as he's coming out of the bathroom with his bathroom book, which his bathroom books just crack me up and I love it. Um, But yeah, no. So I think he's exonerated maybe from his lifetime of murder. He's got less blood on his hands at the end of this than really anybody. And he's um, his decision to stop seems to be, you know, uh, I guess depending on how you look at it, the universe rewards him for that. Okay, you're out. You're the only one who really gets out unscathed. Yeah, he does. And it's like like so. Butch is trying to get out, but it's for a different reason because he's going to be on the run, you know, and he's going to be retiring, but he's going to try to get what he can before he goes. Now, right. Jules is not doing that. He's just like, you know what? I'm going to get out. I'm going to walk the earth meet people i'm gonna yeah like kane and uh i'm gonna what you're gonna be a bum that's what you're gonna be you're gonna be a bum you know like vincent would have gone for the take before he tried to get out and also maybe jules because he's had this kind of moment he doesn't get shot by pumpkin and honey bunny um so he was able to de-escalate that situation as opposed to maybe having to shoot a whole bunch shoot his way out or get killed himself yeah. Agreed. So, um, watching it this time, something that occurred to me, you know, so there's not a lot of trick shots in the movie. Um, there are some where there is like an effect, and I was looking at that, I was kind of like, huh, wh- why is he doing this? So, the first instance, Jules calls it divine intervention. Looking, watching this movie kind of through that lens, I think each of the acts, each of the stories, has a moment of divine intervention, and it's how the characters react to it. So, for example, in of course you have the the initial one is when the guy who looks like Jerry Seinfeld, who when I was fifteen or sixteen years old, I thought, "Holy cow, Jerry Seinfeld's in Pulp Fiction! This is amazing! Why isn't he doing more movies?" So he shoots at him, of course, and misses. And then that's obviously you look at the bullet holes on the wall. Yeah, those should have gone through us. The second, with Butch, they take Marcellus back into the the extra gross room of the basement, and the gimp is there watching Butch, and Butch is bound and tied up, and he's pulling and struggling, and he can't get free. And then Tarantino does this kind of slow motion, kind of a blurry shot, almost like Lou Ferrigno becoming the Incredible Hulk, mm. where all of a sudden – inexplicably butch is able to break free from these ropes kind of like 
for a biblical reference like Samson from the Old Testament, he's able to break free. He's even surprised himself that he's able to break free. So maybe that was some element of divine intervention that allows him to, okay, there's this divine element. Now you get to really act in what, what, what are you going to do with that? And then with, uh, with Mia, she's overdosing. She has snorted probably a few lines of this hardcore heroin because you look at the cocaine consumption. She was snorting quite a bit. She snorts this heroin. She probably should have just been dead. But somehow this low-level drug dealer who lives in some crappy bungalow or something happens to have a adrenaline, uh, shot. An adrenaline shot. And he can't – You know, there's all this talk about him finding the little black book, the medical book they give nurses. But he never finds it. He never gets it. So how in the world does this guy know – uh, to do that. So maybe, I mean, it feels like maybe a little more of a stretch there, but maybe look, there's some sort of, as luck would have it, or as fate would have it, there's this low level drug dealer who has an adrenaline shot. And instead of killing you with it, which is most likely you're going to be able to survive. Well, and there is a lot of luck in this movie. Cause that like one thing that I noticed that I had never noticed on previous viewings was when uh, Vincent is picking up, the heroin from the drug dealer, the low level drug dealer. He says, Oh man, I'm out of, I'm out of, uh, I'm out of baggies. I'm out, no, I'm, I'm out, out of balloons. I'm out of balloons. I'm out of balloons. Can I, is it okay if I put it in a baggie instead? If it were in a balloon, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about the subject, but based on this scene, um, maybe Mia would have known that it was heroin or known that it wasn't Coke, but because it's in this right. baggie, she's going, Oh, well, Looky here, here's some Coke. Yeah, let's do some Coke. So she would have never have made that mistake had that other not happened. Um, And I had never noticed that before. I was like, I didn't realize it was heroin until this this viewing. And he mentions it. And just like Scotty said earlier, I think the closed captions really, really allowed us to learn a lot more. It doesn't do a whole lot of hand-holding where there's like dialogue to cover to make sure, hey, we're we're, we're all together. We know this. We know what's going on. Um, Because there's so much that... Um, that like I'm noticing, like even in in viewings now, but it's like it's Marcellus who's who went to go get the donuts, who's waiting for Butch the apartment. That's Marcellus's gun, his machine gun. Um, and there's just a ton of stuff. what I was thinking about the Gimp. You know, my whole life I've been thinking this is just some crazy sexual thing this guy is into, like living in this cage and everything. Then I was thinking, like, what if he's like enslaved? By Zed and Maynard, and that's what's going to happen to Butch and Marcellus. Like they're going to be gimps too. Like is that like was that going to be their fate? They weren't just going to be murdered, but they were going to be in like this kind of weird sexual enslavement. Well, and I mean it could have been, but you know the uh, what? Who's the one that's not Zed? Maynard. 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 Um, he he says you know like. I'm not going to kill you. Zed's the one that does that or something like that. So this is something that they do on a fairly regular basis. One would assume. Yeah, so he says, nobody kill, nobody kills anybody on, on my property except for me and Zed. Yeah. And and then when Zed shows up, Zed's like, oh, you started without me because they were all beaten and yeah. bloodied. So, uh, yeah, to that point, it's kind of like, good grief. What was the, What is the end result here? Mm-hmm. I mean, so they're going to rape them, but do they, do they kill them? Do they enslave them? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's... Uh, a disturbing thought that he doesn't take us down until you've watched it a bunch and you're like, wait a minute, what was up with the camp? What really 
is, I mean, is that dude like clocking in for work? Yeah. This is uh-huh. his job or he lives in the box. Well, and one thing that I really uh, kind of noticed and maybe paid attention to more throughout the movie, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but in the opening credits, um, you know, they're playing music and then it's like, it's changed the channel. Like you just turned right, the, the tune button, button, you know? Um, and it, it changes to some completely different song without changing necessarily the scene. Um, and I was thinking about, I was like, I wonder if this kind of runs through the movie, not that sound, but the way that it's skipping around. And I thought the way that they shot the movie, the cinematography, um, on this is very much like if you were changing radio stations. So they're all kind of in the same world. They're all in the same, on the same dial, but moving back from one to the other, moving to different times, all of that, you not, you not knowing what you're going to hit on next. And I was thinking, I was wondering if that was intentional um, in the filming of this movie, because I'd never really paid attention to that, that sound at the very beginning, but I thought it was prepping us for what was to come, you know? And and he does that in Reservoir Dogs. So they're the car radio, they have uh, Stephen Wright, I think is the DJ that they're always listening to. And so there's a lot of that in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He does something very similar. The radio is always on and mm-hmm. you hear the radio bits in between to make, make it more pronounced. Uh, yeah, I think that's the watching it this time kind of to that point, Shannon was, uh, that the episodes feel clear. Like why, why was anybody ever confused by this? These are clearly, it's a, it's a full length, one full length movie, but it's made up of these three distinct parts. And he, we don't, we don't have to put them in sequential order. Um, I did want to ask, why do you guys think all things being equal, why do why does he end the movie with the the Bonnie situation? Um it's it's Jules's redemption at the end. I mean I think where where do we go? We'd have that we'd have Jules's we'd have Jules leaving at the very first of the movie, and then what's the end? What is is the end would be Butch. Would be Butch. Um, Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. Yeah, that would be the end of the movie if you did it sequentially, chronologically. And it doesn't. It doesn't work that way, does it? It keeps you on your toes completely. And I remember, like Chris, the Christopher Walken scene. I remember being in the theater, and you're just kind of like, "What the hell is happening? Like, is this like Vince <laughs> when he's a kid? Like, what's going on?" And you know, this guy had the watch up his ass. Like, what? What in? You know, and then the watch is like the most important thing for the next you know thirty minutes. Well, and to your point, Chad, I do think that you know it is it is very much Jules as the main character of this movie. He's he is not obviously in that in the award ceremonies, but his story is maybe not the most important, but the most changing. The arc is the arc is what's important in this movie. Um, right. He has the biggest arc. As we watch it, you're kind of, uh, you know, trying to imagine now what it would be like to watch this for the first time. It's when you come back to the Bonnie situation at the end, you're like, oh, good, we get to see Jules again mm-hmm. and get more of him because he he's pro- he is he the most likable character in the movie? Yeah. Yes. Most dynamic. I mean, he he has great dialogue. Um, he says it so well. I don't. I don't. Did, did they do a lot of rehearsals for this? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about like with them. I don't know what like the main people. I don't know. But he he just nails it. I mean, he really. In fact, 
I think Samuel L. Jackson's whole career after this is Let really in, it's like an homage to what he did in this. Mm-hmm. Even Nick Fury, it's like, oh, what if what if Jules became the head of a superhero unit and you gave him an eye patch? Oh, well, yeah, that's what they would have. That's that's um, where he walked. You know, that was his last walk. <laughs> he walked right, he walked right. right into that. Even scenes where he doesn't talk. Are, are captivating like when um english bob is asking vince about like the date with mia and like oh so you're gonna go out with go out with her like um as a date and like um jules is in the back like just kind of drinking his drink looking at vince's to look for his reaction and it's, it's just great it's great even when you're on the back of his head you know he's like i'm gonna take care of mia and he goes take care of and he makes a little right. finger gun like pointed towards his head <laughs> no, 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 not take care of. Uh, so it's uh, something else about all these characters. Do any of them strike you as particularly bright or intelligent? No, Vince is really trying to, oh, the wolf. The wolf is incredibly wolf. smart. Incredibly that's, why, intelligent. that's why the wolf is at least middle management. Well, and I don't know that it's so much that he's so intelligent. It's his emotional intelligence. You know, like he asked for the principal characters' names. What are the, uh, you know, and he's so clearly playing on uh quentin tarantino's character you know playing on that to to get him to help them you know continue helping them um i think his emotional intelligence is like off the charts he's smart he's he's smart you don't have to be an engineer to be smart smart and he's definitely the smartest one in the movie yeah uh yeah maybe i don't know maybe i guess the the who knows if mia is intelligent or not um don't know, but but yeah, there's, this is not a movie of smart people, really. Even though the dialogue is tricky and witty, and probably would take a lot of rehearsing to get it down, the characters are not. These aren't like uh, people for, who like. Oh well, I went to Columbia University, <laughs> or I went to Yale, and now I'm a hitman. Which is how you know if Noah Baumbach did this movie, that's what this oh, would yeah. be. It'd be Ivy League hitman or something. Talking about how depressed they are. And, and Philistines. <laughs> right, right. Um, so another question that I thought to ask you guys. Um, so many, this, you, I, I think it's a fair analogy to say that Pulp Fiction was like Nirvana Nevermind for movies for a generation. So many imitators, so many uh movies came out after this that were really trying to be this and and it became almost a brand like oh this is a tarantino-esque movie almost all of them were terrible what was the difference why why was pulp fiction so good why are tarantino's movies so good where why can they not be imitated what were these other movies missing i think they were taking um the wrong lessons from pulp fiction they were like the studio was taking the wrong things it was like hey we're gonna have pop culture in the script. Um, we're gonna have hitmen. We're gonna do something weird with the timeline. We're gonna have these characters kind of be connected in some way. Um, and th- th- that was that was for the next six, seven years. Well, and maybe so. What you're saying is they were trying to create a formula out of it, and there's right. no formula when it comes to a Tarantino film, and that's the success of it. Is there isn't a formula. And it's generally first. It's generally the first of its kind, um, which is incredibly hard to replicate and incredibly, it's impossible to replicate. You can't 
be second and first at the same time. And so it's not going to have the same impact on audiences. So I think of like, um, the talkiness of this movie, it kind of reminds, um, was reminder of clerks, Kevin Smith's movie there. I mean, it's all talk. I mean, there's hardly anything that actually happens in that movie. The violence is kind of Scorsese ish. Tarantino loves to take his time with a shot. He follows characters. Uh, he allows them time to sit there doing nothing for a minute, but before they start talking again. So in some ways it's kind of like you took the talkiness of these early nineties independent movies, mix it with the style to a certain degree of Scorsese and you get something Tarantino ish. Um, pop culture, violence. Yeah, you're right. You try to make it into a formula. What, what really I think saves each of these stories in Pulp Fiction that, that makes them rise above being formulaic, even if he's creating a new formula is the human connection that the characters have. Uh, you have this great speech at the beginning about foot massages and, and the gist of it. I mean, it sounds ludicrous, but the gist of it is a human connection that can come through touch at the end of, uh, Vincent and Mia's date after the heroin overdose, after he saved her, after all of that, just chaos, they make the deal that they won't mention this to Marcellus again. And then they shake hands on it. And Tarantino makes a point to show us them shaking hands. And it's this kind of tender touch to bring it in that they didn't need to have some sort of fling. They had this moment. Well, and it it brings back at the beginning when he's asking her about that person that got thrown out of the fourth story window. And she says, the only part of me he ever touched was my hand when he shook it at my wedding. So, and then they end it with a shaken hand. Right, which which tells us that, yeah, that doesn't exculpate her. She they she and Tony Rocky Hara may have had some moment as well, uh, mm-hmm. because here he's doing the same thing, and clearly there's a spark there between them. Um, and so if, Chad, a good question is: Would you rub another man's foot? I have three sons. It's you said it was ridiculous. Yeah, but feet. somebody not related to you. You know, would you rub another man's foot? <laughs> Are you, I feel like you're trying to bait me into responding the way Jules does. Yes! <laughs> I'm getting a little pissed here. You need to chill. <laughs> well, so on that idea of connection, so who does who do you think Butch connects with? Marcellus. Exactly, Because yeah. Because they're the two, they're like his father and Christopher Walken, you know, in the pit of Hanoi, two men together, you take on responsibilities for each other. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Oh, that oh, is that's so good. That's incredible. Yeah, that is so good. Oh, okay. So, what about who does Jules connect with? Uh, I think I think the guy in the diner. Who Ringo? Ringo. Yeah, you know, he saves Ringo. Uh huh. But I mean, he's also he's making because Ringo before that had been talking about you know like maybe we'll get out of this. I don't want to be doing this forever. And she's like, well, what are you going to do? Get a real job? Get a day well, job? No, not in this life. Not in this life. And so then they do, they stick up the diner and then this happens. So maybe that put Ringo on a different path. I think, yeah, I like that. So, so Jules has this connection with Ringo, a deep connection. I mean, it's, it's really the most soulful connection in the whole movie. And then Butch and Marcellus 
I love that. I had never thought about the two guys in hell. Well, and that's really what they are. And the, at the very beginning, I mean, there's a lot of allusion to what happens at the very end, like particularly with the uh, the conversation between Marcellus and Butch at the very beginning in the uh, bar. Because uh, let's see, he says, motherfuckers who thought their ass would age like wine, um, by the way. And then fuck pride. Pride only hurts. And then, like, Jules actually says, does he look like a bitch? Why did you try to fuck him like a bitch? Oh, that's you know? interesting. Yeah. Um, because because in, in when he's Marcellus talking to the drug it. dealers about Marcellus, you know, did you forget about your boss? Does he look like a bitch? What does he look like? You know? Um, and you think he's trying to bait him into some sort of racial racial slur or something, which happens quite frequently through this movie. But, yeah, all of those allusions so, to the end are to what happens. Yeah, for sure. Especially to Marcellus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's and to Marcellus. And Marcellus Mar- is talking about pride and pride. You, you don't need pride. Pride only hurts. And whereas it was Marcellus's pride that was ultimately took the biggest fall. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Do we care what's in the case? Um, it's very shiny. The case? It's shiny and I- gold. I always thought it was when I when I saw the movie I thought it's gold it's it's just and drugs but then you know didn't you have a friend Chad who said that he talked to Quentin Tarantino on a message board in '95 or yeah on on AOL chat '95 we'll see Tarantino happens to get on so I the so the real I think the something that is based in truth is that in the early drafts of the script. I think it mentions that it's diamonds in the case. Diamonds isn't diamonds what they were what they'd stolen in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, probably the most likely is that it's a connection to Reservoir Dogs in that way to say, oh, they've got they've got a big briefcase of diamonds. But this lunatic mm-hmm. that I went to high school with, who claimed to be on some 1995 chat room that Tarantino came onto. Um, at the, I mean, you just think of how improbable this is. At the height of Pulp Fiction popularity, Tarantino's like, hey, I'll check and see what this local message board is saying. I think it's probably uh, just anyway. as likely as Scotty's boxing career. <laughs> right. But apparently, at least the story was that Tarantino told them all, the movie is an allegory and it's Marcellus's soul in the box, in the briefcase. That's why we show him with a bandaid on the back of his head. That's supposed to be like the devil took his soul out of his back of his head. Um, I think there are biblical allusions in the movie beyond just Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, but I don't buy that. I don't think it needs to be his soul or anything like that. Uh, diamonds, gold, whatever it is. It's something of great value that apparently impresses the, the hitmen when they see it. I do wonder what is what was the what were Brett and his homies supposed to do? What were these guys? How did this deal go wrong? What was the deal? I think they think? probably were supposed to get them the case because that's what they said. Okay. They said they were supposed to get the case. Where's the case? And uh, they just hadn't brought it, and that's why they're like, "Did you forget about your boss?" You know. Um, so maybe they stole them for him or something. Yeah, yeah, or something. Okay. Yeah. And Jerry Seinfeld just happened to be hanging out in, <laughs> in the, the bathroom room. with a gun. Well, he was probably just in the bathroom when they showed up and then he Reading gets the gun. Yeah. Reading a book like you do in the bathroom. Um, even even at the diner. When John no. 
If there's, there's that's not, there's, that's part of my my takeaway from this movie is Vince should never go in the bathroom. <laughs> something bad, yeah. something terrible will happen. And also, yeah. So anyway, I just thought of something about Butch. So he still he still has his pride. He he doesn't lose it when he goes into that he goes into that apartment and that key goes in. I mean, you're is as you're watching it, you're like listening to that key noise. But then, like, he's got the he's got the watch, and he no one's there, and he's feeling good, and he gets the pop tarts. Is that his pride talking to him? Like, hey, you've got this, you've got this beat. I mean, because wouldn't you be like, just I got, I made it, I'm getting the hell out of here now. I and also I, I yeah, your pride would be like, uh, my safety is more important instead of I beat them. You know, I'm smarter than them. I outsmarted them. And he makes he makes some statements like that, looking pretty good, yeah. Butch. Or this, and when yeah. he gets back, you know, after he shoots uh, Vincent, gets in his car, this that crappy Honda hatchback, and he says, "This is how you're going to beat him, Butch," and drives. So he's yeah, he's very much. Uh, I would. It seems like there's an, a, a a moment of humility for him with Marcellus at the you know at the end of their story. This idea that he's willing to go and stay gone, because uh, he could have killed Marcellus right then, and said, "Nah, I'm I'm sticking around," you know. But instead, okay. But I, I, I had never thought of that. Yeah, they are they're taken into their own Hanoi hell, and the things that two men will do for each other. One, you don't if you're both in line to get gang raped by some psychopaths, you don't leave the other guy behind. <laughs> I guess that's kind just of like a war, and, and it does look like Zed is—he's uh, security guard, but I mean that looks like a cop uniform to me for right. a long time. I mean that's—I think there's yeah. a message being sent there. Well, he's got—he's got a gun. Yeah. I mean, he's got a gun. Do we think that that? I mean, it wasn't like a standard issue, probably, but I don't know. So the yeah, question is: Was he—is he a security guard? Is he a cop? I think he's security guard. That okay. that that makes more sense with his. With all of this, you know, him wanting to exert control, exert control over, over people because he can't exert control in his own life. Yeah. Wow. That's a good psycho analysis of Zed. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) This is what people come to the podcast for. (laughs) The the movie ruins those names, doesn't it? Zed and Maynard. I mean, if you met some guy who's like, hey, how you doing, Scotty? I'm Maynard. You're like, no, I don't think so. Which, (laughs) previously, we would have been so impressed with those names, right? I mean, Zed and Maynard, that was something. Before I saw this movie, if somebody had come up to me and introduced themselves as Zed or Maynard, I would have had a completely different reaction. So positive. My mother's name is Jughead. (laughs) Now you're like, listen, I... You seem like a cool guy. I'm not going to call you Maynard. Can I call you like Peter or something? <laughs> Peter. Uh, I've got a movie that is maybe a rival to Pulp Fiction or kind of has some of these elements in the 90s okay. that maybe works. Because like none, most of them did not work at all. I think Boogie Nights kind of has that formula a bit. Um, it's got the sprawling story. It's got you know a lot of big name actors in an independent movie. Young, young, amazing director. We were going to have the next 20, 30 years. I think that's the only one that kind of comes close to, to Pulp Fiction, like that we had in the 90s. And, and I don't think he was, he's not trying, uh, P.T. Anderson is not trying to do a Tarantino movie. No, no. Um, I think he may be trying to do some Scorsese stuff. 
So both of these movies, I, I don't disagree with you. I think they're probably evidence that of Scorsese's influence on filmmakers because I think they're both uh, – there's elements of Goodfellas in both of these movies. There's elements of uh, Raging Bull. Raging Bull I think has a jumping timeline. Um, so yeah, and they're both revitalizing. That became kind of a thing. Uh, maybe part of the forced formula is who's a like a kind of a has been actor that we can revitalize. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson did it with Burt Reynolds, and Burt Reynolds was terrific. And of course, John Travolta now is an a was an a lister after the success of Pulp Fiction. I read that for a while Travolta was like running scripts by Tarantino to see like should I do this movie? That's a good that's a good move if he'll take the if he'll do it for you. Yeah, he stopped. Well, that's. <laughs> So, you know, I think he did Get Shorty after this, and Tarantino told him, yeah, you should do that. And then he did, I think, the stuff with John Woo, Broken Arrow and uh, Face Off. I think Tarantino's like, yeah, you need to work with John Woo. He's amazing. But then after that, he started doing other stuff, and it went downhill. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, can I tell my John Travolta, my John Travolta story? Tell me. kind of, so I mentioned this to you years ago, probably 2010 went to this continued education thing in Dallas and there's all these lawyers there and we're having lunch and this guy's like, Hey, can I sit with you guys? Me and the two attorneys that were here from East Texas. And we're like, sure. And he's just to be, I guess, kind of an icebreaker. He said, can I tell you my claim to fame? I am John Travolta's lawyer. And we're like, Oh, and, uh, so the conversation then starts about, you know, what kind of movies is John Travolta making now? I think he had done maybe like Wild Hogs or something, like some comedy. He had done that, and he'd done that men. movie where he's got a shaved head, where he's like, um, got like a bazooka out of the car, like that kind of movie. He had not done that one yet. Okay. And that's important to the story. So the guy's like, oh, yeah, you know, John's doing this and John's doing that. And uh, I said, can I. Can I make one like observation? And he was like, oh, of course. And I could tell that he probably was used to really impressing people with his resume as he did. And I said, John Travolta was so good in Pulp Fiction. He really needs to get back to doing movies like that. Uh, he, it's like, you know, he was good in Broken Arrow. He was good in Face Off. And then he started doing these really watered down things that aren't good. What – what do you? What influence do you have to help this man get back into doing good movies? And he said, "Well, oh, if you like Pulp Fiction, you're gonna love what he's doing next. He's doing this stuff that's edgy and it's violent, and oh, you're just gonna love it." And it was that movie, the one you just described, like "To Paris with Love." I don't it's, know what it's something called. like that. Yeah, but it, yeah, it was like so. Maybe within the next year, that movie came out, and I saw part of it. And it was like, no, no, he did. He didn't listen to me. This is garbage. He didn't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's as close as I ever have come to John Travolta was through his lawyer, who even the lawyer, and I don't know in what capacity he represented John Travolta, but even maybe even Travolta's people didn't get what had created the fire in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good... has not been in any other Tarantino movies. No, he hasn't. He hasn't. And usually the Tarantino, once you're in, you're going to be in. I mean, 
Samuel L. Jackson was in stuff. Uma Thurman was in stuff. Um, Steve Buscemi had a good run. Uh, Eric Stoltz. Do we all agree that Eric Stoltz should have should have had a better career than he did? Yeah, he's he's, good I really love him. I really love him. Just about everything he's in, really. Does he still do stuff? I'm sure he does. I don't know what it is. Um, you, see, you guys watch a lot of movies. Yeah, I haven't seen really, Eric Stoltz we, in a while. We don't necessarily. I've got no? I've got some picks for who could who could have been who could have been in this movie besides these people. Okay. For Lance, like, I've got, because it says, like, John Cusack is Lance. Like, I think that was maybe, like, the first choice. Quentin, I can't even, like, really picture that. Um, Have you noticed, one comment on Lance, have you noticed that he looks like a younger Jeffrey Lebowski? Oh, I guess he does. Yeah. With the robe and the Mm -hmm. hair and everything. I mean, that's what, this time I was like, holy cow, he looks just like the big Lebowski. John Cusack is Lance. I, mm. I can't see it really. I see. No. I wonder if Robert Downey Jr. could be Lance. So I was thinking, because you you told me beforehand, think about you know some alternative casting, and I think that this casting in this movie is pretty close to perfect. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I there's nobody that I would rather see in the movie, but I kept thinking Robert Downey Jr. could tackle the dialogue. He could pull it off. He can be intense. Lance would be would be a good entry point. The key conclusion was RDJ needs to be in a Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. He can do this and make it make it awesome. Yeah, but that's interesting. Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. Especially at that time period, because he would have kind of been a has been then, right? He was like kind of like it was like post Chaplin, and he wasn't. You know, he was always somebody that we should have been like the biggest star, but like just kind of was in these kind of weird movies or movies that didn't really make a whole lot of sense and yeah i kind of think you and i were the only ones who really liked robert downey jr in the 90s we were the only ones i loved robert we're, downey we're, jr in the 90s we're watching these movies and going like man he's so good in this in heart and soul he's so good in heart and soul <laughs> heart and soul that's how i learned to play the piano <laughs> we had a piano we watched heart and soul and i was like i'm gonna learn how to play this it's not a hard song I lo- but I love that you've seen it too. Yes. I love that. Oh, that was a big movie in our house growing up. So I got yeah. three weird kind of choices for Jimmy. Philip yeah. Seymour Hoffman, John C. Riley. Yep. Um I'd like to see Michael J. Fox as Jimmy. Like Michael J. Fox now? Um no, I think Michael J. Fox at the time. Like um it's not- Pre-Parkinson's Michael J. Fox. Yeah, like, um, yeah, like young, you know, kind of like really nervous. Secret of my success. Secret of my success, Michael J. Fox is Jimmy, like, you're fucking up my shit right now. Like, <laughs> I would take it. Yeah, I think that's great. And Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley. I like that you're kind of introducing this dose of Paul Thomas Anderson into the Tarantino mm-hmm. world, some crossover. Michael J. Fox would have been awesome. Yeah, I like that. Because... You and I have mentioned this before. I think Tarantino, acting-wise, is the weak link in the movie. Mm-hmm. And he's serviceable. I mean, it's okay. It's for what it is. But Michael J. Fox would have been like, holy cow, look at Michael J. Fox. I can't believe he's saying this stuff. Yeah. And I, th- and I think also you don't know – you don't really – do I really want all-stars in every scene, like four or five? And then they're kind of like you know doing all that. But like uh, – yeah. I was also thinking about Kevin Bacon for Vincent. 
I actually could, uh, when y'all were talking about John Cusack earlier, I was like, you know, that might be an interesting choice for Vincent as well. Um, I don't, I don't know. He's kind of maybe too likable to be that character. Um, but I'd be really interested to see if he could be less likable. <laughs> so on that note, my, when my mother saw the movie and she, I think her only comment after watching it was, John Travolta is still so handsome. And so she, you know, she was a child of the seventies and the early eighties. And so like, uh, urban cowboy and Saturday night fever, those were like movies that she really was into. And, uh, he was a teenage idol for her, you know, when she was a teenager. So in a part of it, I kind of wonder if that was intentional. Like I just know, you know, you're watching Travolta and he smiles at Mia when they're at the restaurant and it's kind of like, for being a low-level thug hitman, he, he he's got this charming smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a handsome guy, and he's still, even though he's kind of got a little bit of a belly and this greasy hair, he still has that. So, part of me kind of wondered if the casting of John Travolta was important for the role as well. Like he can do the role, but I also want it's kind of a wink. Like, hey, look, I've got somebody from the '70s, and they're still charming. Yeah, I think I think that's but, a magic for it. Yeah, I think uh, Uma Thurman would have been difficult to replace as Mia, but I would have been interested to see. I would be interested to see Scarlett Johansson now, like right now. She's done some really interesting work, and I think I mean I I think she could she could probably pull that off. That's yeah. probably who would be at the top of the casting list if they made the movie today. Mm-hmm. They'd probably say we want Scarlett Johansson or. If we can't get her, maybe we'll go down to like Rachel McAdams or, you know, somebody, somebody. I, I don't, I don't think I could see Rachel McAdams. I thought you could do it even back then as Charlize Theron. Ooh, Charlize Theron could have. Yeah. Was she, was she on the scene that early? She was going to be in two days in the Valley, like two years later. I think. She's pretty tall. Maybe they wanted somebody who is more petite. <laughs> she is little. Like, Mia Wallace, Uma Thurman is little. And Charlize. Charlize is a, I don't know. She seems like she's tall, but then again, everyone seems like they're tall to me. <laughs> Even, and apparently to you, Scotty, including my seven-year-old son. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's one of my first memories from Mary Helen. Is she? Uh, I said something about. She said something about how Scotty was tall, and I was like, eh, you know, I mean, he's. He's like, at, you know, like he's actually the shortest person I've ever dated. She's like, no, Scotty's tall. I'm tall. <laughs> she, it's like Mary Helen, you're she teeny. She, you're not tall. She's she like, I have tall, tall kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, who can somebody else be? Jules. Mm, mm. I've got. I've got Robert Downey Jr. for that because, like, I read I read that Lawrence Fishburne, that Tarantino wanted Lawrence Fishburne to do it. Lawrence Fishburne is never funny to me. No, he's he's not, I, he's he's, not charming. I don't want Ike Turner to be Jules, and that's what it feels like. I think if he was Jules, it feels like Ike Turner, like oh, he's about to punch a woman. What about Butch? I, did, did you send me a thing that they wanted Matt Dillon for Butch? Yeah. I don't Matt Dillon. So he was the first pitch. And he said, let me think about it. And Tarantino was like, no, there's no thinking about it. Screw him. He's off the list. I think Matt Dillon did have some juice back then, but I don't, I love Bruce Willis in this movie. Yeah. Well, and he's kind of, he's kind of pathetic. 
And, uh, but also just like, uh, Vincent's character, very charming and you can kind of see, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're good moments, charming moments. Um, but for the most part, he's just kind of an idiot and pathetic, but you kind of love him anyway. He's like a lovable, he's like a dog, you know, like not that dogs are dumb, but you know, kind of looking for approval Especially like when he's asking Marcellus, where do they go now? What happens now? He looks like a little chastened schoolboy in the background, kind of like hunching his shoulders and right. waiting for the kick, you know? Uh, so on on that note, what do you think about Butch throws that temper tantrum in the, I guess it's a motel or something, when he throws the TV, when he finds out mm-hmm. that Fabian has forgotten the watch. And then he like stops on a dime to say like it's not your fault. <laughs> um is that is that funny or is it just he's crazy or what? It's a pretty traumatic moment. Shannon was pissed off watching it. She was like, "Why didn't he pack his own suitcase?" I was just like, right. you know, you don't even have to pack your whole... Because Scotty's like, you know, he was in a hurry. He didn't know he was going to be doing this. And I was like, he could have at least opened the suitcase, put his most precious item in the world inside of it, instead of remembering to remind her three times to put it in the suitcase. You could have saved her the trouble and put it in the suitcase yourself, you know? <laughs> of course, yeah. we wouldn't have had this scene. However... You know, it's just like he could pack his own damn suitcase. I think it's a tender moment, like after he, when he calms down after he's like throwing the, the suitcase and everything. And he's like, I, d- I didn't have t- time to tell you how much it meant to me. I can't tell you right now, but like it meant a lot. And that's also that's that's very that's kind of deep for his character, you know, to to recognize that, especially in that moment. Um, and that 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 took a lot of uh, emotional I, I was impressed by that moment. The rest of it pissed me off, but I was impressed by that. So the the screenplay is credited to Quentin Tarantino and Robert Avery. And I have no idea what Robert Avery has done after this. They both won the Oscar for original screenplay. And Robert Avery, the only portion of the movie that he contributed to was the Butch stuff. Mm-hmm. He didn't he didn't write the first two chapters or the, the first and third chapter. And to me the movie feels it, it has a different tone with the butch stuff uh starting with a french actress as his girlfriend it feels watching it this time i was reminded of that uh that short movie that wes anderson did that was like a pre a preamble to the darjeeling limited okay yeah with natalie portman, and, yeah. and natalie mm-hmm. portman um which was kind of an homage to these french movies from like the 60s and 70s that's what the beginning parts of the Butch stuff reminds me of because it's just them in this hotel. It, uh, and it's all like tender. It's showing it, you know, they, they have, it starts out tender and kind of romantic with them, I guess. And then it shows that he can be kind of a brute when he's making fun of her, you know, calling her uh, a retard and she's getting really offended and they have that banter back and forth. Um, it felt kind of like one of those old French movies. Mm-hmm. And whereas the other parts did not, of course, then oh, I kind of wonder like when they're writing this, like, okay, so, so what happens with Butch? I mean, how do we reconcile him and Marcellus? Well, maybe they're about to get raped. <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, maybe we should figure that out. How, how does that happen? <laughs> uh, you know what? We're going to bring in the cursed watch. <laughs> 
the, his most prized possession, which will probably kill him one day. Yeah. 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 It seemed to kill everyone else except for his original owner. Yeah. Yeah. I, Scotty's, Scotty's going to make a 10 episode miniseries on the Gimp's origins. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, what's the doggy bag? What are you taking home? What's its legacy? Do you want me to go first? first? I'll, I'll go, go first. Let okay. the coppages wrap it up. It's, um, so one, this establishes Quentin Tarantino as, as a thing. Uh, every, there are not many filmmakers today that we say, oh, this is a new fill-in-the-blank movie. I've got to go see it. But in Tarantino is probably in a, a list of maybe only two or three filmmakers that you're like, i got to see this guy's movies. Um, takeaway, I think, is the dialogue that um, these movies that can have violence and can have pop culture references, but they can be witty and clever and um, – I think this became one of the more quotable movies from the 90s. Uh, There's certain things you can say today in a crowded room and a decent chance that some people are going to turn and give you the nod of acknowledgement. Um, I think it gave us Samuel L. Jackson. I think it gave us uh, – I think it surprised us with Bruce Willis that he could do something like this rather than just being a straight-up action hero. Uh, the biggest takeaway is probably uh, the uh, the legacy is probably just Tarantino himself. Um, when people ask me what Tarantino's best film or your favorite is, it's Pulp Fiction. In a lot of ways, like Jackie Brown can be better, maybe, or Inglorious Bastards, or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And as great as those movies are, it wasn't the ride like this was. You know, I haven't held birthday parties for those movies. Or movies just trying to get people to watch them. You know, the the movies weren't a language with friends, and those other movies didn't like help me with like with a breakup. So I don't know if many things will have the power as I get older as Pulp Fiction does for me. I like it. You you saying that before Shannon says this? A recasting. Brad Pitt could probably Brad Pitt today could probably do Vincent. Yeah, absolutely. Back then he couldn't have because he was a little too pretty. But I think he could do it today. Yeah. Agreed. Um, mine is four pronged one hitmen and drug dealers are just like you and me bullshitting, looking for meaning Two, always run life decisions by Quentin Tarantino. If possible, three Vincent should never go to the bathroom. Bad things always happen. Mia overdose diner, stick up murder and four, but just watch, watch is cursed. That's my takeaway from this movie. I love that, Shannon, that nobody seems to acknowledge the curse of Butch's watch. Nobody's like, um, hey, maybe you should just leave that. Like, yeah, like good riddance. Right. It's, it's like, like a, the like vampire TV show and his hat. It's like the oh, hat well, is cool. <laughs> what we do in the shadows? Cool? Yeah, the hat is cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it keeps coming back. <laughs> uh, I noticed that with Tarantino's later movies, he doesn't really um, – for a while he was kind of casting these people whose star was fading. John Travolta, Robert Forster, and Jackie Brown. Yeah. Um, Robert Carradine. Then, uh, the Carradine yeah. from the Kill Bill movies. But in Glorious Bastards, there's really nobody in that, right? I mean 
Mike Myers? Was like a, who? Mike Myers? Well, I don't know if that did anything for his career. <laughs> uh, once, once upon a time in Hollywood, it's, I mean, it doesn't really revitalize anybody. Everybody's pretty A-list in that movie. Well, no. Wait a minute. What's the guy's name? The guy in the trailer. Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern. <laughs> Who did you tell me the other day you would recast as, in that character? Michael J. Fox? No. <laughs> <laughs> Michael J. Fox is just going to be a... Michael like... J. Fox is in the trailer with Dakota Fanning. <laughs> Squeaky? <laughs> Oh, yeah. man. There was talk of a sequel. He wanted to – like there was talk even from Tarantino that he was going to do this Vegas Brothers movie with uh, John Travolta and uh, Michael Madsen, the character from Reservoir yeah. Dogs. Um, yeah. I'm kind of – I'm glad that didn't happen. I'm glad it didn't happen. Let's... To be honest, I don't even really like Michael Madsen and Kill Bill. He just seems too sleazy. I don't know. Yeah. He's a good – it's a good performance, but that's – yeah. Mm-mm. Well, thank you, Chad, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed my first ever episode with you. I think it was a good one. It wasn't quite four hours, but we were stretching. We were stretching towards it. (laughs) Well, thanks. It was my pleasure to be with you guys. If you like this episode, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts and check out more episodes. We're going to have a big 2021 as we have moved hosting the podcast to our website, macandcheesemovies.com. Dogs got personality. Personality goes a long way. Mac and Cheese out. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Maria de Medeiros, Bing Ravens, Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walker, and Bruce Willis. Look at something for me. my friend, Luca. Die, you mother! A new film directed by Quentin Tarantino. Of course you're going to do that. Basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. Of course you're going to walk the earth.